Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Peter Phillips, a professor emeritus of political sociology at Sonoma State University and former director of Project Censored, 1996 to 2010, and president of Media Freedom Foundation, 2003 to 2017. He has been editor or co-editor of 14 editions of Censored, co-edited with Dennis Liu of Impeach the President, The Case Against Bush and Cheney, 2006, editor of two editions of Progressive Guide to Alternative Media and Activism, 1999 and 2004. His most recent book is Giants, The Global Power Elite from Seven Stories Press, August 2018. He was a co-host of the weekly Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio with Mickey Huff, 2010 to 2017, originating from KPFA in Berkeley and airing on 40 stations nationwide. He has taught courses in political sociology, sociology of power, sociology of media, sociology of conspiracies, and investigative sociology. He was winner of the Firecracker Alternative Book Award in 1997 for Best Political Book, Penn Censorship Award 2008, Dallas Smith Award from the Union for Democratic Communications 2009, and the Pillar Human Rights Award from the National Associations of Whistleblowers 2014. He lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico with his wife, Mary Leah. I welcome Peter Phillips to Savage Minds. And your last book, Giants, you look at the top 17 transnational investment corporations, the almost 200 individuals who are on the boards of directors of these giants, what you call the global power elites, and then the 389 firms that enable this global concentration of power, what you call the facilitators. And I think a lot of people don't see that kind of x-ray of what is presented to us in the media. And you do this quite well in your book. And I'm wondering if you might speak to us about the way you decided to analyze the giants, the global power elites, and the facilitators? Well, the focus um, in giants, and I'm working on a new version of that called Titans of Capital, um, is how concentrated uh, wealth is um, in the world. And, and by wealth, I mean, actually, what we're talking about here is money. And um, so corporations have stocks, and and then these giant investment firms, BlackRock, Vanguard, um, UBS in Switzerland, Fidelity here, uh, State Street. I mean, th these are multi-trillion-dollar investment companies, and they literally own the media because they've been bought up the stock. So they are one of the largest stockholders in all the major media systems, and uh, so they're interests come to play in corporate media that um, restrict uh, the parameters or the full parameters of what corporate media could talk about. So we have a, a framework for media and news coverage that fits into um, global power elite wealth uh, concentration in, in terms of what they need, and that's continued growth and expansion, that they're not gonna do any negative stories that would, would um, in any way hinder that. So when we say that, I mean, yeah, there's 
boards of directors for these companies and that kind of stuff. But the but the actual ownership, ownership of the stock, it falls to these big investment companies. And they clearly will um, have a, a big influence on how management sees what uh, what the news is and how it should be covered. Can you give us an example of this, for instance? Because a lot of people, they talk about the bigger companies, even big tech, Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And they saw this a lot during lockdown when they couldn't question mask mandates. Accounts would be snapped up or you'd be given a 12-hour ban. People think that's it. The extent of it is Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. And you're saying this is far bigger. Yeah, for sure. Big public relations firms, Omnicom, WPP, um, manage information flow from the giant corporations. And so Comcast, Disney, the big independent, the big media, Time Warner, 21st Century Fox, uh, Bartleman's in Europe, Viacom, all of those have predominant stock ownership held by the top one half of 1% of the people in, in the world through their investment management companies. And that clearly um, frames what they're going to do. And many of these companies are very interested in protecting profits. And one of their biggest area of profits is uh, investment in, in, war, war in war companies. Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, they're all heavily invested there. So when we're at war with someone, uh, or creating a, a, a war a war scenario, the United States has been at war with someone for ever since World War II. I mean, we're invading countries and doing all kinds of stuff. Any criticism of that is is limited because war is so profitable, and these big investment companies are are invested both in uh, Viacom, CBS, and Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. So they are the the center of how capital, how money influences what we see in the world um, and have every capability of restricting that um, and diminishing negative stories about war and or um, propaganda around uh, like the war in Ukraine, uh, Putin's uh, allegedly Putin's war. They've demonized Putin, but they've been wanting to get rid of him for a decade. Uh, the Atlantic Council several years ago called for his removal. And the Atlantic Council is the main advisory group to NATO and, and security issues. Oh, they fact check for Facebook. Yes. Um, so that kind of control, that kind of defining um, is has created a narrow um, parameters of what uh, uh, these corporate media cover, media companies will cover or feel free to cover. And that uh, repression of news about the negative aspects of the American empire um, is, is totally ignored. I can only agree with you. I've seen the way the media washed places where I was living at the time. I lived in Nicaragua when the Contra War was ongoing. And we saw what happened with that. We also saw a lot of illegal funneling of money from like the Bush family <laughs> down to Central America. But the media doesn't 
cover it. And when they do, it's considered the domain of like the nation or Harper's. But even then, today, both those magazines seem to have drifted further towards the center and don't seem to represent that terrain of investigative journalism that they once had. Can you explain why? It's not just those two. I don't want to pick on those. Who, there's a lot of publications that used to be more on the ground, boots on the ground, investigative journalism. And I'm not seeing a lot of that by these medium-sized publications. Why do you think that this has happened as well? Is, is, is it a coincidence? Is it internet? It's not a coincidence. It's deliberate. Um, and you speak of the nation or even democracy now on, on the Pacifica network has limitations in terms of what they will cover. And, and we did a study on that a decade ago. Um, and we looked at the independent media ones at the time in these times and democracy now and, uh, a dozen others. Um, and there was certainly areas that they wouldn't cover. They weren't covering um, the Cuban Five at the time. And, or if they did, it wasn't fully elaborated. Uh, they're very careful about uh, covering aspects of where U.S. dominates, like in Haiti. Um, it's, you know, never brought out that the elite class in Haiti is fully supported by the United States and will repress um, the Lava Loss movement, for one, uh, which was where Pre President Aristide was, was based. Um, and they ousted him. Uh, he's back there now, but but uh, it's, he's been very controlled and is in danger of being killed at any time. So um, <clears throat> those those kinds of things are as we I was director of Project Censored for 14 years. And every year we came out with important news stories that weren't covered by the corporate media and Project Censored under Mickey Huff and Andy Andy Roth still do that. So there's constantly major stories that often critical of corporate power and elite power that um, are ignored and just not covered. So we have a very biased media um, and it, it feeds into the U.S. empire goals. And the biggest goal is to protect investment capital worldwide and allow a free flow of capital and its continued growth and expansion. Um, that's what governments do in the West. And <clears throat> their intelligence agencies work on behalf of protecting capital. There's no other way <laughs> to say it. That, that They call it vital interests. And a lot of times we'll say, well, our vital interests are this. What that means is that our investment capitalists the big people with, you know, trillions of dollars of, of money to, to, to decide where to put it um, are being protected by the institutions, the military elite, the political elite um, in each country. But this is now global. So countries lose their ability to restrict this because that capital can flow across borders um, quite easily. And any government that... Um, tries to, isn't cooperating, is going to be undermined and um, likely to, to have a power shift. So the U.S. has gotten very good at that. And um, we've invaded countries worldwide, uh, um, particularly the Middle East, to protect oil. Um, 
that we have a long history of that. And, and it just drives me nuts because the, the, like the New York Times will say, well, you know, the, the current invasion by Putin uh, is the first time a, a comp company has invaded another in, in Europe to take over, take over parts of it. Uh, that's, I mean, that's not true. I mean, the U.S. has invaded uh, Yugoslavia. I mean, and, and uh, broke it up. We uh, covered uh, Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran. I mean, it's it's an ongoing uh, challenge to anybody that questions and tries to control how capital is used anywhere in the world. Um, and he, I mean, even the Chinese now allow capital investments, and they have, have capital in terms like the Industrial Commercial Bank of China. They, they have a $2.3 trillion worth of investment capital that they're, they're spreading around. And parts of that are coming from the West. This is depressing, Peter, what you're telling me. I don't get depressed about it. I mean, it's just what is. I mean, this is the way the world's working right now. Yeah. Um, we have to continue to sound out about it. And um, people understand that they're not getting the whole truth. Um, but we're... We're seeing, of course, this shift towards the, the center right um, across the board, not only in the U.S., but in Europe as well, uh, even in Japan. And um, <clears throat> that's a concerning element because it's so closely linked to what we call historically fascism, or that's, a, you know, protecting the business interests of the elites in a country. Uh, a form of that is, is overt fascism. True, although I'd have to say that you mentioned democracy now, and that's a really good case in point to examine because they sort of saved my mind in the years following 9-11. Democracy Now! was covering the black sites, obviously the global war on terror, as it was called and then renamed by Obama. But in those first few years, they were really on it. They got the mercenaries. Jeremy Scalehill was born there and went out on his own. Now we've got The Intercept. And there have been a lot of offshoots of some of their journalists. And then I look back at what they're doing today. And they're celebrating pronoun day and, and nonsense like this. They're, they've become almost a neoliberal joke in so many ways, not covering the important issues. And you mentioned Haiti. I wrote a, a book about what happened there. Oh, I was there just months after the earthquake happened and I watched the corruption from the Clinton Foundation towards all the NGOs. I don't know if you're aware, there are more than 10,000 NGOs in the country, 10,000. And you get there, you see, you see why, you see why you get there. Oh my God, it is one UN after another NGO after another UN truck. You virtually see very few micro buses that the Haitians use, tap tap, they call them, and you really are overwhelmed by the fact that you're in a country where the encroachment of vehicles is majority you and an NGO or INGO, international NGO, and the Clinton Foundation, what are they doing? <laughs> if you saw, you know, the 10 billion, no one wants to talk about the 10 billion missing, right? But that money has now been co-opted and is being used to make these kind of woke ecological experiments. So now people can recycle their paper and make little briquettes to cook with. So you can learn how to wet a lot of paper, push it in a tube, extrude it, and then you've got homemade briquettes. I mean, this is great for a high school project, but when you start to look at the 10 billion of missing funds and you see 
the way that Haiti is that perfect international relief floor show where all these NGOs are keeping the furniture just shifting, moving around. The UN does the same thing. They send a 25-year-old P2 or P3 out there. These are ranks, very low ranks, and they send them to these disaster zones. It's, it's a business. It's a goldmine of a business. They send them out there. With cholera, no less. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a real bifurcation, too, because the troops will be, they'll be from Sri Lanka. They'll be the poorest of the poor, but then you get these, will there be anything from Ivy League graduates to the equivalent of Ivy League graduates in every single country in the world. You'll be seeing the elite from Kenya, the elite from Somalia, the elite from Peru. They'll all be there with the elite from the U.S. and the elite from France and Canada and so forth and in Japan and you name it. And it's fascinating to watch as the what when you get after P3, there's an attrition rate because people get sick of it and they leave or they go to other NGOs and they're sick of the U.N. And you'll find that the morons are in charge. The most mediocre people are the ones making it to P4, P5 ranks in the UN. And I'm not ashamed to say this, I saw it. They put a woman in charge of child trafficking in Haiti called Caroline Bakker, <laughs> this Dutch woman who had no knowledge of child trafficking, zilch, right? And I got involved by accident in child trafficking and in, in investigating it, in writing a study and in proposing a much larger, larger project. But what I found, aside from my work on this subject, was the way in which these organizations, and they also brought the media in, they were able to woo the cameras. So if you've got a load of tents without any logos on them, or if they already have world vision, but you want the Red Cross on them, you give people a few 10, 20 US dollars to change the tents over. So when the CNN cameras come, they show a sea of that NGO, right? And I saw this all the time. No one right. reported on it. I found a New York Times reporter. I said, you need to do a story about what's happening at the Dominican border with child trafficking and the way in which the head of the Ministry of Interior and Family is part of it she wouldn't look into it she'd started to and then she came back to me and said she couldn't now what kind of new york times reporter doesn't look into something like this anyways you see how it's all puppet theater you know and i was pretty disgusted from the beginning to the end there's so many problems in this but the way in which the media refused to cover it and i tune in because i had internet and I would see what was being said about Haiti, and it was day and night from what we were living. You know, there was no actual real news. They showed the tents, they showed the devastation from the earthquake, they showed the, the problems from cholera. Of course, they blamed the Sri Lankan army for that, right? Wink, wink. And they would put Sean Penn in a good light, they would put Twitter in a good light because he used Twitter to get a diphtheria vaccine. And it was all about stylizing the news and making it palpable. But they never show Haiti, which in 1954 was a very wealthy country, and what our policies did to that country. Never do, does the media show that, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Haiti is just one example, but I mean, you can talk about Palestine or Iraq or um, any other country that's in a struggle of some sort, and you're going to see um, capital interests being protected uh, not only by the media, but by literally by by the world. So, um, you know, somebody who isn't supportive, like Aristide, uh, when he was president, 
um, he's kidnapped, physically kidnapped by American mercenary forces working for the U.S. or in U.S. interests, flown to Central um, Africa, left there without without a cell phone, and I guess he was lucky to be alive. But um, the the corporate media here was simply saying he fled he fled uh, Haiti that he he was afraid because the people were unrest was happening and he fled. And even Colin Powell said that, and it was wrong. Kidnapped and taken there and isolated for a, 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 at least a year and, you know, finally made it back. But at that point, the structure, you know, the political um, structure of what was going on in Haiti was already under control of, of the elites again. So Aristide is there, but he's not effective as, as he was when he won, when he won overwhelming uh, vote. And they did that to him twice. And then let's not talk about his predecessors and the way the U.S. put up those governments. It's phenomenal to see that in the U.S. school system, how this is all skirted, right? We don't get the kind of education that even when I taught in South America, my students in Peru, they were taught about their history. They were taught the the ills of their history and the brutalities within their history and the brutalities done to them. And Americans, you know, we turn on the TV and we're like, oh, that earthquake's so horrible. And I remember someone telling me she was watching when the tsunami in Sri Lanka happened. Maybe it was like that Huda Kutub show. And, and it was like, after the commercial break, we're going to have someone on who's going to talk to you about 10 things that you can do to avoid a tsunami. This is what we're being fed. We're being fed phototainment. I don't know. Fake news as entertainment that has zilch to do with the issue at hand. And I know a lot of our listeners, because people listening to the show who come from all sides of the political spectrum, a lot of times because of the shows we've done on the woke culture debates that attain a lot of interest from both the left and the right, especially the right, and for good reason. But I'm wondering if you could tell us, Peter, why what we're talking about isn't this artsy-fartsy, lefty, paranoid theory about capital. And I say this parenthetically stating a few facts here that I'm rather impressed by. At the same time, I tuned into Democracy Now! during those years after 9-11. And it sort of saved my mind in a way because they were doing some stuff that no one else was doing at the time. They've since veered course on that, which we can get to later. But I could not stand the sight of Tucker Carlson. Could not. I was. And if you had told me in 2002, that 20 years later or 18 years later, I'd be tuning into him, I would have you know, told you to go and jump off a cliff. Now, during lockdown, I tell you a lot of things happened. <laughs> I'm in the lockdown center. We're the country that decided that China was a good idea to model ourselves after whatever. Now, we went into lockdown on 23 February here in Italy and uh, in those months and in these years that have transpired since, I have gone to Fox, not because I think it's the gospel truth, but I'll tell you something, Peter, it's really struck me how during lockdown, all these ostensibly left of center publications, left of center visual media channels, whether internet or like Democracy Now! that are cableized, 
they haven't focused on class issues as much as a lot of the Fox News presenters. And it really was awakening for me because I kept thinking, am I on crack? Have I taken LSD by accident? And even then, Tucker Carlson has come out and said he was wrong about the war on terror. He was wrong about that. And he recognizes a lot of the ideological passing of the buck that went on between Powell, Rice, and the esteemed Judith Miller. And you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, Judith Miller, I've just found out because I had a guest on my show, really lovely guest. And when I was looking at his article one day, I realized she published in the same publication and it's not coming to my head at the moment, but she's sort of been allowed to resuscitate herself. She was even then allowed to resign from the New York Times. There was no perp walk for her, right? But her colleague around the same time within a year or two, Jason Blair for plagiarism was given the perp walk. He was shamed for what he did. And if you give me my druthers, I'll take Jason Blair's plagiarism over her fabrication of WMD any day of the week, right? I mean, that that was the justification for a full U.S. invasion of a country. And um, we were lied to completely. And, you know, millions of people died because of that. Certainly civilians in, in Iraq, were, were, their death rate was quite high. And then the sanctions, of course, had had caused a greater hardship uh, and in certain areas, uh, overt starvation and lack of resources for people. Um, so they, you know, in some cases they, they could, they, if they had the resources, would flee, stay there and, and, and possibly die. So that occupation, that invasion was, was a tremendous uh, I'll use my Catholic heritage, mortal sin for um, the United States. But I want to step back in time because I am not a media historian, but I did a little scratching during lockdown because you know what? One day I thought, hmm, where did newspapers come from? I did one of those. And I went to a readership type of black hole where I started to read a lot about the birth of the newspaper and what I learned. And it's quite fascinating. In London, there's a street called Fleet Street. And it's actually both where the fleets, the, the ships would moor. And it's where there were a load of papers. And the papers, the newspapers were born there in Venice. And both cities began newspapers around the same time, I did a little scratching, but related to big tycoons of the time that wanted to drum up business for themselves. So they thought, oh, I'll talk about what's happening on our street, what's happening around our ships, what's happening in this town. And the, the newspaper was born from business. Now, I was a bit surprised of that because I would have expected the newspaper to have been born by even a group of Christians volunteering to spread the news about someone's death or sickness in the town. No, it was not that. It was entirely concentrated around a business trying to keep its wealth by looking as if it were giving objective facts about everything around it. And that's impressive to me because I wondered if we haven't shifted one iota from that model, only multiply that a few million times. I, I think what you're, the roots of what you're saying is absolutely correct. 
Bob McChesney, you know, in his his books, um, he talks about the uh, history of newspapers in the U.S. Um, and it's, you know, it's also a, a global thing. So, you know, companies like like um, Hearst and, of course, the New York Times and, and, and that are um, primarily protecting um, business and, and wealth uh, by that's their agenda. That's what they cover. That's how they make profits. And then they hire public relation groups like Omnicom and W to um, package news stories for them um, and have them connected directly um, and released as, as if it was objective uh, reporting. It, it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing. Uh, you know, in my book, I do talk about the investment uh, for Omnicom and, and how those people are um, managed and who their major clients are. I mean, you look at um, governments. Omnicom represents uh, the city of Barcelona, British Columbia, Brooklyn, um, Houston, Korea, Los Angeles, Mexico. So they're managing the New York Police Department um various airlines toronto worldwide unicef all of those are managed the information about them are managed public relation firm uh, omnicom and um the, the one of the largest is wpp it's the world's leading pr firm so a lot of what we're getting in terms of news are managed news stories that are preempting objective coverage I know it's hard to give an example on this because it would require almost one of those sketches, uh, like a Venn diagram or something. But is there a way you could give us an example of this? I mean, I, I mentioned earlier when you said Atlantic Council that they are the fact checkers for Facebook. And it's no surprise that if you go onto Facebook, you'll lose your account if you say certain things about Putin empirically true things about Putin. For instance, say that Putin has been talking about the problem in Ukraine for a decade. This is a fact. I've seen people have their posts removed or they've been placed on suspension. Now, our listeners might wonder, what has that to do with this? Well, it has everything to do with this, given that I think it was last September's report by the Pew Research Institute that they found that Americans are getting more than half of their media through social media, meaning Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And Twitter has an even higher percentage rate, it goes, it veers towards 80%. So if you control the fact that I cannot share with you an article about Hunter Biden's laptop, and the publisher of Hunter Biden's laptop lost their account, right? So you've got the post with no account, me, I get a 30-day ban for sharing it. This has huge and extending repercussions. This isn't... So, yes, it's accelerating. Exactly. And it also punishes wrong thought, right, Peter? Because if I... I mean, this has happened to me. I'll tell you, yesterday I had a 12-hour ban from Twitter. This wonderful person I follow on Twitter, he used to go by another name. I can't say his name because he came back as another name. And he's got these very snarky responses. His mission on Twitter 
is to protect women and to basically defend our rights to be in a changing room or a prison without a man who declares he's a woman. Okay, that's the short end of it. And he asked a question and I gave a snarky answer, which was all hyphenated. It was something about what should we call women? And I came up with a snarky answer that reflected the language of trans activists. Mind you, these terms that refer to us as vagina havers and, and cis heterosexual, even bitches, and I've seen it all, that is allowed to stay on Twitter. So what I did is I created a one word term with hyphens and I got banned within a minute of posting it. So clearly a bot picked it up. <laughs> I had a little giggle because I thought, oh, if only I were a man in a dress, this could have stayed up. And I had to decide if I appeal it or not. Now we know what happens if you appeal with Twitter. I've done it. You hear nothing back. You'll be left without an account for a month, if not much more. I, I played uncle at about a month the last time and I decided not to because I use my Twitter account for disseminating articles and podcasts for Savage Minds. But this means, and this happens to me, I don't know if this happens to you, I have to think twice before posting a completely true statement or story or something that I find interesting. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? Uh, you're asking me that? Yes, of course. Which is very discouraging because so many people, uh, they don't want to be identified as having a position um, that would be negative to Facebook or 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 elites in some way because there is repression going on there is punishment for that and um you know you can lose ability to um express yourself on on social media people not only does that happen but it's also in terms of of, of that it's 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 an ongoing process that is deepening in the public who are afraid to uh, even maybe even click on and read it all of that is controlled and, and is part of um, collecting human information on humans worldwide. And um, that is an agenda for, in, you know, it has been around since Reagan to, to you know, create and build um, information bases about the public, not only in, in the United States, but worldwide. Yes, information bases and marketing bases as well. It's it's completely perverse. Well, they they can use it for marketing, but it's also it can be used for repression. That's right. I've spoken to people on the show who are experts in bots and who've looked at the way that bots can disseminate fake news. And it's quite a paradox that for all the Trump derangement syndrome out there. In my lifetime, he's the president that's caused the fewest wars. He might be many things that we loathe, but that's the truth. Another thing is, and it's a paradox because he has trafficked himself in fake news, but he's also brought it to light through the, not just the words, but the way he enunciated it, it became parodied on Saturday Night Live, and that the neoliberal left, the Democrats especially, hate. And they've, they've grabbed hold of this man. And I view this similar to the media obsession over Black Lives Matter during lockdown as these kinds of mediatized and politicized derails. 
of the real news issues. And I'm wondering if you've thought about this as well, because you, I don't know if you're aware that Black Lives Matter, I don't know if you checked out their board of directors and the people who are the higher ups, but they have strong links to the Aspen Institute. These are not the leftist peaceniks that they are represented to be. I've never looked at that board, but that's very interesting that you say that. Um, I mean, of course, the Aspen Institute is is kind of like the Trilateral Commission or the Atlantic Council. They're setting, making recommendations for policies um, internationally, and in particularly the U.S., but it's, you know, one of these educate and self-educate elites um, you know, go pay some, you know, a lot of money to go to one of these workshops and stuff in Aspen and, and be able to hang out there with other elites. Uh, it's, um, kind of diabolical in many ways. And I certainly recognize and am quite concerned that that will become the dominant way we understand anything. Um, because nonprofits are not exempt from this, these kinds of controls and influence. And I followed Amy Goodman's career pretty closely. And when it came to the questions about 9-11, she would not go there other than, you know, make a little bit of factual. She'd have it as a debate, you know, uh, but that was the furthest she got. And, and, and there was huge numbers of, ma you know, major questions around the whole 9-11 incident and that continue to be. And um, but she was very, very careful because anybody that expanded on that was called a conspiracy theorist. And that's a very negative thing for any um, journalist to be labeled. And um, it just undermines any credibility. Um, to what you're trying to do. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Peter, I don't recognize democracy now anymore. I really don't. Like, what happened to Amy Goodman? I want to know, because it's like an invasion of the body snatchers. She talks more about pronouns than, look what's happening in Haiti right now. I feel like that is one of the hugest human rights cases to talk about, the way in which NGOs have come in, wasted the national resources of that country, the UN as well. And no one's talking about it. No one's talking about the Clinton and the Clintons and how they absconded with the money that was raised for Haiti. This is all well documented and still no one's covering it. Well, I'll go back to this idea that Trump um, wasn't supposed to win. Hillary was supposed to be president. And um, had that happened, we would have been at war with Russia much more quickly than, than we are moving towards. And uh, in, a, in a sense, we had a, a break from the transnational elites agenda and the Democratic Party and or the Republican Party, but Democrats in particular are deeply embedded in in, in war, and, and they have been since you know World War II. I mean, so certainly the Korean War, the war in in Iraq, um, have all been um, 
assisted through the Democratic Party. Remember when the war was decided for Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe it was one, Barbara Boxer, was it, from California who said no? That's it, one Democrat. So the media is not only successful at selling war, they're successful at selling war blaming the Republicans. They can't even take responsibility for who voted and for who accepted this, right? Absolutely. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. And I also going to say and expand this to say that if you are a trillion investment company and a major portion of your investments are in war companies um, and you're, you are managing the news and have co-investments in major, all the major news uh, organizations, your agenda, your emphasis on why we need this war, why Putin needs to be removed, or why we have to eventually probably going to have to have a war with China. Um, it's all one-sided, both on Fox and on SNBC, even though they're shooting at each other around Trump and other things, but it's not addressing the commercial interests the deep, the deep trillion dollar investment packages uh, that are controlled by a very small number of people. And uh, part of my, you know, the work that I'm doing is you look at the top 10 uh, investment companies now in the world, um, that those 10 controlled by like 120 people on their boards of directors uh, are, are managing uh, 50, trillion dollars and uh, in, in just 10 companies. And I mean, a trillion is, is a thousand billions. So 50,000 billions are managed by this hundred this group of 120 people. And they get to decide where it's invested. And, and they have to, and their agenda is to continue growth with a return you know, their target is 7%, but um, that they're allowed to spend that money and expand it. And then the central banks and the, and the Federal Reserve are allowing banks to literally loan them money at zero interest, give, give them money. Um, and in some countries, they actually pay them to take money. So it's negative interest. And then that money is supposed to continue to allow the growth and expansion of central capital. And that's worldwide. So that, that agenda feeds all of these things we're talking about in terms of media control, in terms of war, in terms of priorities of interest. And, and of course, the last two years, last three years, the, omni, you know, the, the virus attacks worldwide and the repression of humans in terms of their ability to move around freedom and and that uh, including the media control of, of the social media to try to prevent people from talking about the negative aspects of vaccines and we're getting news on that in recent days as well with the COVID vaccine and the makers admitting that they fudged on the numbers of the negative outcomes well there's 
you know, that new Harvard study that talks about the, if you have the Omnicom vaccines, uh, if you have three, three or four of them, you're more likely to get, um, <clears throat> get sick than if you don't. The World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, um, just jumped all over these kinds of lockdowns as mechanisms of control. And uh, that is part of their new agenda, their philosophy of capital of the world and protecting that capital concentration. And the people, you know, the, the one half of 1%, the people of Davos, and who, you know, set this world agenda for capital growth and expansion are quite pleased with the ability to use um, biological justifications for lockdowns and, and, and citizen control. And countries are, are lit, literally population control zones. Um, that's the organization. The states um, are beyond the ability to, to control or in any way influence the overall capital um, that's so concentrated and are willing to repress their citizenry um, in, in, in service to uh, continued expansion and profits. Uh, that is, is, to me, extremely concerning that we're losing any kind of control over these, this vast amount of, of capital. And even the United States has limitations on that, even though probably half of that capital's come here. So I'm very concerned. I think Italy is certainly one place where that kind of uh, oppression is, is accelerated. It's happening in England as well and um, other, other places around the world um, are testing that ability to control populations in terms of communications, in terms of freedom of, of movement, uh, in terms of investment capabilities. I'm very concerned about that as a movement in the direction of capitalism. This is horrible. You know, you you talk in your book about the CEO of Renault and the Japanese Nissan Corporation as well, who was arrested in Japan, Carlos Gossen. But it's interesting how the media focuses on some enfant terrible who's done something wrong. We don't know quite what. We're explained it. Even the Gilets jaunes in France, that has also been very problematically exposed within the media. And we're taught that there's a coup d'etat here, there's an overtake there, an arrest of the leader of this corporation. Um, I just finished watching. Or this party. Yes, yes. We're being told currently that the reason why we're paying a gazillion times more than we ought to for fuel this winter is because of Putin. But that's not the story, is it? It's not the story. No. I mean, the Russians didn't blow up their gas line <laughs> so that they could not send gas. That's right. Um, you know, we're, I think we're pretty sure that the, the benefit from that line being blown up um, was, was, U.S. interests or corporate capital interests, um, which the U.S. government is uh, overtly protecting worldwide. 
And the intelligence agencies are right there, you know, using their own resources and or military resources. Somehow they, they were able to, you know, put together a destructive device, a bomb that was more good, big enough and placed on that pipe to blow it up and have all that gas escape into the North Sea. Um, it, it's really a, an amazing story. What happened then to Amy Goodman? I want to know because you are one of many guests I've had on the show. We've all noticed that something went awry with democracy now. What happened between 2002 and today? Millions of dollars, millions of dollars from various corporate interests. And then a hiring of, of staff. And, you know, they, they use that money. And they pay people, including themselves. Um, but, you know, they have a strong um, central left-leaning agenda that is allowed to continue because they don't criticize um, the big contradictions um, or the, you know, the war lies or the Putin, or the determination to undermine Russia, which is a long, long-term going, and, and China together. Um, John Pilger did that movie, you know, The Coming War with China. And in it, it's quite clear that during the um, this Cuban Missile Crisis, where we almost had a nuclear war, that our, all our nukes were lined up and ready to go, including striking all the major cities in China. So we were ready to take out the world then. And uh, certainly Chinese and the Russians. Um, and we know now much more accurately that any level of that, even limited nukes like between India and, and uh, <clears throat> Pakistan would cause massive starvation in the world. Um, uh, you know, a global winter and uh, we would lose maybe two thirds of the world's populations. Now for some people who have their own escape pods um, and, and wealth, um, that's an acceptable agenda. It's becoming more acceptable that that's the long-term direction for the world to go. Um, but the radioactivity of that is, it would be lasting for, um, tens of thousands of years, it would kill us all. So I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And uh, I live in an area um, in Albuquerque, and our Air Force base here is one of the main holding sites for, for nuclear weapons. So, you know, if you're going to be in it, I guess I couldn't be anywhere else, but in, in, in dead center zone for world a world of nuclear exchange. I did a piece about two years ago about the Google worker protest that involved Project Maven. I'm sure you know about this, a project by the military codenamed Dragonfly by Google. And they did a protest that ended Google's involvement with that. But of course, someone else came in to do that. That's another story. Um, but over 200 academics and researchers signed an open letter. Okay. 
I think back to the less evil version of Hillary Clinton. Remember when she suggested during her husband's presidency about campaign finance reform and that got her kicked to the curb? And I'm mentioning these facts because as you speak, as I read, as I write, I always think, how can we fight this? I think back to Canadian feminist Megan Murphy, who lost a case, I believe, in California court system against Twitter. Her account was canceled for referring to a man as a man. <laughs> We're in a very strange place. And I'm despondent, Peter, by the fact that a large part of me thinks that the gender lobby has been ushered forth by those in power. And I don't think it's a case that many leftists think this is a right-wing conspiracy. I completely disagree. I think this is a conspiracy of sorts by the haves against the have-nots. It's a great derail, isn't it, to have everyone arguing about pronouns and that lesbians can't have penises. I don't know if you know about those debates, but that's what's occupying the dearth of Twitter these days. And they're affecting, in real senses, human rights of women, of women athletes, of girl athletes. The repercussions are confounding and they're everywhere. Hence, there are tens of thousands of people speaking out as you and I speak right now about that issue. It's not a minor issue. So when I say it's a derail, I'm not saying it's not important, but I think they've basically thrown a yarn at a cat. And there we are. I don't want to minimalize the importance of what I've just stated, however, because you have women in prison with male rapists. Just last week, or was it 10 days ago, they announced that a rapist of children would be put in a prison of his choice, meaning a woman's prison, where there's a maternal unit, children. It's so perverse. It's so perverse, and I can't emphasize that enough. At the same time, I wrote my piece about Dragonfly, and it's interesting because at Savage Minds, we try to cover all the news, and it's the identity politics that gets the most clicks. So what are the answers? If we can't sue Twitter in court, we can't insist that the New York Post be restored. I mean, Twitter did it, but it didn't have to. It could have legally said, we're not giving the New York Post its account back after the Hunter Biden episode. And there are so many cases. I mean, we talked about Judith Miller, but between Judith Miller and today, what about Russiagate? What about the New York Times collusion in a lie? Not just the New York Times. They've been on board with this, but so has the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune. What happens to all those media outlets that have carried forth the baton of lie? How can we have a public that's informed if at the end, whoever pays the most will always have a lie? As capitalism concentrates wealth, and it's been doing that since the beginning of time, but it's, you know, accelerated to a global level. Um, and it's inevitable that that cannot be sustained because they have to continue to see it grow. And they're, they're protecting artificially now by just creating money, which is part of our inflation problem. And uh, we are on the verge of total collapse of capitalism. And that can be accelerated by nonviolent, uh, non-cooperation movements of various sorts worldwide uh, that are happening. 
I mean, there's resistance to this in every capitalist country in the world. And in some cases, you know, even large numbers of people. But I mean, we have to recognize also that half the world lives on less than $2.50 a day per person. And that 80% of the world live on less than $10 a day per person. So the, the bulk, you know, the top 20%, the revolution against capitalism is going to come from there for the people who are on the edge, uh, so to speak, and are losing um, their way of life uh, due to wealth concentration. And these are, you know, middle-class people with homes that are, you know, they, they can't sell them because the interest rates are so high now. Uh, and, 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 that's, and that's just going to accelerate and, and become worse. Um, and, and, it's, and it's worldwide. So I, I just finished this book by William I. Robinson, Can Global Capitalism Endure? And, and he's, you know, overtly saying that we have to resist global capitalism um, and overthrow it and stop it because it's destroying the world. And it's destroying the world economically, uh, environmentally, and the threat of global war is there as well. So if we're going to stop that, and it's going to have to be the lower income part of the 20% in the world who are going to even be worse off, because poor people don't revolt, um, you know, unless it's really destroying their, their lives in, the, you know, in some way, like they raise the price of food and you can't feed your family, then, then you, you and millions of others may be resisting. <laughs> well, I just thought, Peter, I was in India when the price of onions raised. Uh-huh. And yeah. that's not a pretty picture. And I tell you what, asafoetida, which is a substance that the giant use because the giant believe that you cannot use onions and garlic and so forth. That doesn't hold any stock with the majority of India. They want their damn onions. So do I. We've been abandoned of community because successfully Airbnb has been able to convince people with multiple dwellings that they own. I have to underscore. They've convinced people who own two or more homes that they are due excess payment. And I have to say that neoliberalism has stuck the fork in the cadaver of greed. What do we do? Because the problems are everywhere. You've just mentioned all the half of 1% trillions of owners of companies and global giants, but it extends down to all of us. And I bang this dead horse because I think that we need to start making a difference ourselves. Even if we can say the Kyoto Protocol will never be met if we all give up our cars tomorrow. Isn't there something that people can do to fight back? People are doing that all over the world. And the inevitability, the, the, the good side of all of this, or at least, you know, from a perspective of control and power, is that it's inevitable that this won't work for capitalism. And we will see varying degrees of police state emerging worldwide, which will be resisted strongly by millions of people as that repression becomes more overt. And we will see countries literally changing um, and, and mobilizing. And we're seeing that in South America to a certain extent um, and, the, and the fight in Brazil right now. So there's a mobilization of people um, you know, from the, the 20% 
um, who are on the downside of that, that aren't millionaires, but, you know, have a job and get by and, and maybe even have a home that they can live in, but they're not exploitive and they're being exploited and, and their credibility, their capabilities of sustaining their lifestyle are being undermined massively. And, and then they're being controlled out of fear um, by, for biological, you know, medical reasons. Um, and that's a repressive in itself. And so people are beginning to recognize that this is a, a false mechanism of control and that they have uh, the, the right and the necessity to resist in every way possible.